Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Sometimes science goes too far. Dark Matters, Twisted But True, Wednesdays at 10 on Science. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. Uh, Happy New Year, too, huh? Yeah. That's Chuck Bryant, Charles W. Bryant. Baby New Year himself? Yeah. He's always chubby. He? Me? No. (laughs) Baby New Year, Chuck. Yeah, with the ears. Yeah. Poor kid. He always has like kind of curly hair, which I'm not, I'm not partial to. Yeah, you know, growing up watching the uh, the little claymation Happy New Year baby thing, the Baby New Year. Remember with the huge ears? Huh. Oh, well, that's what I was just talking about. Yeah, that was like the little stop claymation, uh, like Rudolph. Yeah, but there was the one for for New Year's, and it was the baby that had the huge ears. When he took his hat off, his ears would pop out, and everyone would chastise him. Uh, what did it sound like when he took his ears out? That's was it like that? What it sounded like actually, but <laughs> yeah. I always felt bad because I thought it was a cute little claymation baby. Yeah, was that the crux of it? That like he just had big ears and everybody laughed at him. Yeah, I can't remember how it ended. He finally found a home or something. I don't know. Yeah, good because there's nothing sadder than a homeless baby on New Year's. Yeah, with big ears. Chuck, Josh, have you ever heard of Herophilus? I have. Okay, you want to talk a bit about Herophilus? Sure. Journey back to fourth century BC, or as you like to say. BCE, yeah, <laughs> the new BC, right? Um, he was the—he's known as the father of anatomy. Yeah, and one of the ways that he became known as the father of anatomy was by um, dissecting, vivisecting live human beings. Yes, live. Well, I was about to say a live cadaver, but a cadaver is dead. So. Sure, live human human patients dissecting for. For science, right, and I believe they, they were in pain. They were criminals, right? Uh, many times, yes. So uh, we're talking about human experimentation. We're, we're basing this on an article written by the fine, esteemed writer Robert Lamb, and he starts out page zero with um, this account of Herophilus uh, cutting through the eyeball, yeah, of a guy who is strapped to a table, mm-hmm. and I guess something stuffed in his mouth to muffle the screams, but his eyeball is being dissected in front of a, a group of surgeons by yeah. Herophilus. Can Apparently, I read this one line? Yeah, please do. Once more, the master pot's flesh enters the bloody maze of arteries and muscle. <laughs> I know. We should have gotten RL in here to read it himself. Yeah, that's good stuff. So, yeah, um, apparently this guy that, um, that, that Robert's writing about, this victim, was one of uh, more than 600 that were vivisected at the hands of Herophilus mm-hmm. over the course of his lifetime, right? Yes, live prisoners. Yeah, so that's kind horrific. of... Sickening. It is horrific. Right. But it was apparently par for the course, right? Yeah, at the time, sure. So all these people, why would you why would you dissect a live person or vivisect a live person? I think it's dissect if it's dead and vivisect if they're alive. Is it? I believe so. Well, I mean, there's 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 reasons for it. You wouldn't want to justify it, but they were doing that because sometimes uh, you just need a human to perform an experiment on and. Sometimes a cadaver doesn't do the job, and before there were scruples, they would, you know, do it on a live person instead of like an animal test. Right. Apparently, back in Herophilus's age, also they thought that air was carried in the circulatory system rather than blood. Yeah. Which is weird because if you vivisect a person, blood comes out. 
Sure. Although I imagine air does too, since you can't see it. They're like, oh, well, it's air. This is just something. And this guy's the father of anatomy? He is. Come on. Uh, here's the big uh, ironic twist. All of his writings that he, all the notes he took, all the the scholarly works he created based on the deaths or the intolerable pain experienced by these 600 people mm-hmm. were all lost. Yeah. When the Library of Alexandria uh, burned in uh, 272 A.D. Yes. <laughs> this is rapidly devolving <laughs> into a sound effect show. Somehow. Yeah. So, um, should we tell people what that is? Sure. Jerry got us a little gift for Christmas, a little uh, sound machine. And the funny thing is that she asked us to keep it on the DL, and we just told a hundred thousand people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The other so, funny uh, thing is that she actually said we could use it. I thought she was going to say, well, here, but you can never use this. Right. Yeah, and she encouraged us to use it as well. Right. So, Chuck, the uh, idea of somebody writhing under the knife while a guy like Herophilus or anybody else with a sharp uh, sharp object cuts his eyeball open to examine the uh, nerves inside uh, is a pretty horrific idea. Indeed. Um, and the problem is, is this kind of thing didn't end in A.D. 272. No, it continued on. Apparently, history is littered with human experimentation. Yes, so much so that there were body-snatching problems in the 19th century because medical schools needed uh, bodies. Right. They, they, you couldn't, in the 19th century, uh, by the 19th century, you couldn't vivisect anybody. No. You weren't supposed to. Sure. And also, um, because of the puritanical ideals, um, you couldn't do any kind of... Um, a dissection on cadavers. You're right. Now, of course, you can. Right, uh, which is a good move because, yeah. uh, like you said, there was a lot of grave robbing going on to supply the medical schools who still needed this knowledge mm-hmm. um, and wanted it and were willing to pay grave robbers for it. Yeah, big time. Do you remember uh, back in 1989 when they f- uh, found some bones, actually 9,800 bones in the basement of Medical College of Georgia? Really? Yeah. Did not know that. Yeah, they were. They, they dated back to the 19th century, wow. and they were linked to um, robbed graves. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy, isn't it? It is. So, you know, that's if you're dealing with cadavers. If you, there are also, if you wanted to experiment on a live, um, living thing, then you would now have to go the route of like chimps and rabbits and mice, rats. Right, which actually what we've done from what I understand is with human experimentation, we've put lower, I'm making air quotes here, lower species yeah. in between us a- and initial discovery, right? Yeah, yeah, the problem was back in the day, though, they did the same thing, but they considered lower species other humans. Specifically convicts. Yeah, or poor and destitute, diseased. Right. Yeah, exactly. But convicts, for sure. Convicts have pretty much always gotten it pretty bad um, as far as m- human experimentation goes. But yeah, um, so these days we, we do put uh, rabbits and rats and, mm-hmm. and um, chimps and macaques in, in between us and, um, you know, not knowing yeah. what a drug will do or something like that. But really, ultimately, it still ends up to humans. Sure. And one of the reasons why is because, you know, you can't, uh, you, uh, you, uh, they, we don't even know whether or not animals experience happiness. Uh, you know, do they? Uh, how could we figure out if they're hallucinating? Yeah, you sure they it can't self-report. That, yeah, you got to ask questions every now and then. Right, and then also, I mean, if you're doing, if you're making a drug for humans, you eventually have to find out exactly what it does to a human. It's right. not going to have the same effect on a rat, although it'll probably be close. Yeah, and we'll we'll get into that in a minute. 
All right. Should we talk about some of the uh, horrific things that have happened throughout our history, Josh? Well, don't forget the – hold on. There's another, there's another route you could take. Oh, yeah. I know it. Self-experimentation. Yes. Living – your living self, experimenting on yourself. Which, I mean, there have been some famous examples of this. Yes. Famously, uh, Pierre and Marie Curie uh, earned a, a Nobel Prize in physics for right. radiation research. Yeah. And they did this by – Taping uh, radium salts to their skin and seeing what happened. Right. So that's one way to do it. Another guy uh, who famously tried his uh, his research out on himself is Albert Hoffman. Oh, really? The guy who uh, created LSD. Right. And apparently he had a diary where he writes about his bike ride home after injecting himself with LSD. And he had no bike. <laughs> I hope it. Yeah. Oh, all right. No, he had a bike, but he was gotcha. like, wow, nothing is real. Yeah. And I really feel like listening to Pink Floyd right now. Right. Yeah. The yet to be discovered Pink Floyd. The yet to be born, I think, even. Oh, yeah. Um, so, Chuck, self experimentation has its own flaws, right? Oh, of if course. you're uh, vivisecting an eyeball and you do it to yourself, you can't do that more than once. No. You probably wouldn't even do it that one time. Yeah. So, really, there is a, uh, a lot to be gained from vivisecting human beings. We don't do it. And one of the reasons why is because it's horrific. So, yes, let's talk about some of the horrific human experiments that litter history. J. Marion Sims. Does that name ring a bell? No. That is uh, considered to be the father of gynecology. Oh, yeah, J. Marion Sims. Sims. And uh, he even became the president of the AMA in 1876. Right. But... He developed um, experimental surgeries by testing them on African slaves many times without anesthesia. Yeah. Dark side for sure, man. Yeah, I would definitely call that a dark side. Yet he gets lauded probably in many circles still today. He does. Um, Apparently, uh, that was, we think of the Nazis especially, and we'll talk about them in a minute, but the U.S. has a really shady history of human experimentation. Um, A guy named Dr. Leo Stanley uh, injected prisoners at San Quentin uh, with animal testes to uh, slow or reverse aging, which did not work out. Yeah. Um, and 1906. Yeah. Cholera experiments on uh, in the Philippines conducted by us. Uh-huh. 1915, Pellagra experiments in Mississippi. Right. Uh, and then apparently we were talking about how prisoners have always gotten a bad rap. Up until the 1970s in the United States, pretty much all pharmaceuticals were tested on convicts. Yeah. So you did not want to break a law. No. I wonder, you know how people harken back to like the uh, the golden age when there was less crime and less violence and right. all that? sure. I wonder how much of it had to do with the fact that if you went to prison, like you would be experimented on. Yeah, I wonder if you know that, though. It probably wasn't widely reported until you get to prison, then you're like, oh, oops. Yeah, that's, yeah. Had I known. Right. But I imagine uh, recidivism rates, what a, that's a bonehead word. Yeah. Uh, were pretty low. Yeah, you're probably right. So, Chuck, you know, also the United States was huge into compulsory ster- sterilization, right? I did not know that. The eugenics movement. Oh, okay. So, uh, between, I guess, the early 1900s, the first decade of the 20th century, uh-huh. up until the 70s, I think maybe even 1981. Uh, 64,000 people in the United States were sterilized against their will. Like wow. epileptics, uh-huh. the mentally handicapped, yeah. the blind, deaf, mutes, um, schizophrenics, and Native Americans. Right. 
against their will, sometimes unknowingly. Unbelievable. Yeah, which uh, you, you that's not necessarily an experiment because you know exactly what's going to happen. The person's going to be sterilized. Yeah, true. But um, if you look at it as eugenics, it's, it is kind of a larger experiment to basically create a great race. Right. And then the eugenics, po- the popularity, I mean, it was well known this was going on. This was in a secret government program. Right, like MKUltra. Right, and uh, there was public support for it until World War II, which remember... Uh, actually, can you remember to the future? Yes. When we talk about mercenaries. Right, right. World War II changed everything, right? It did. Yeah, the Nazis really led the way when it comes to human experimentation, um, as everyone knows, against uh, the Jews, gypsies, anyone they felt like targeting. They would do things like freezing them to research hypothermia. And that actually came, uh, that became huge later. Their hypothermia research oh, yeah. is like really used still. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, and we'll get into the ethics okay. of that. Uh, they put them in uh, compression chambers to test the effects of high-altitude flight. Which, th- it doesn't get much worse than that. And a sterilization experiments as well, like the U.S. was doing. Mm-hmm. They would use uh, phosphorus, incendiary phosphorus devices to yeah. s- figure out how to treat phosphorus burns. Uh, Japan was another country. Yeah. Their uh, unit 731, very famous unit, uh, reportedly killed more than 10,000 Chinese, Korean, and Russian uh, POWs. Yeah. To develop biological weapons and test the stuff out on them, basically. Right. Um, so the Nazis in particular uh, faced the music at Nuremberg, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and there was this uh, part to the Nuremberg trials called the Doctor's Trials. Uh, and I think uh, a bunch of the guys, like 17 were convicted, and, and most of them, I think, were hanged. Really? Yeah. Um, and a lot of these guys' cases were, we didn't break any laws. There's no lawful outline right. of what to do when you're experimenting on a human. Right. And a lot of this stuff followed the same kind of protocol that uh, we had before the war, right? Right. Which is just horrendous, but in a lot of cases it was actually true, right? Sure. So one of the results of the Nuremberg trial was the Nuremberg Code, where the international community said, all right, we need to outline some some guidelines for human experimentation. Right. And it, it, I think there's like t- uh, 10 points to it, 10 large overviews uh, to human experimentation guidelines, and it focuses on um, reducing uh, fear and pain right. and discomfort in the experiment subjects that can't be coerced, that has to be willing, that have to be informed. What's this covered by? What's that under? Do you know? Like what document? Or organization that's under? I don't. Yeah. Probably the UN. Okay. I would think the UN would have something to do with that. Yeah, you would think so. But yes, but it's very famous. It's called the Nuremberg Code, right? And it solves like the moral quandary. Uh, did you ever see um, Extreme Measures, Gene Hackman, Hugh Grant? Yeah, yeah. All right. So you know like in the end, I think they're in a sewer somehow. Mm-hmm. Gene Hackman's like, if you had to kill one to save a million, sure. wouldn't you have to do it? And so the Nuremberg Code solves that. And the answer, by the way, is no. You wouldn't kill one. Yeah, that's the old, the age-old question, though. Right. Kill one to save many. Which is a very utilitarian view of, of looking at things. Like, yes, you kill one person to save a million. Of yeah. course you do. But right. we, uh, as an international collective, have decided that you don't do that. One person's life is worth as much as a million people's potential lives. Right. So that brings us to the, the real quandary, though, with human experimentation is... What do you do with this information that is gained from these awful, awful experiments? Right. Um, a lot of detractors will say that to use this information supports human experimentation. Right. But then another way of looking at it is to propose, like, kind of do a thought experiment of, all right, let's say that you are 
you walk in on one of these experiments and you say, your death is inevitable, Mm -hmm. and it's going to be a painful, horrible death. But you can choose whether or not this data that that results from your death is suppressed or used. Which one do you want? Well, and then, yeah. you know, the, most people would say, well, if I'm going to die anyway, sure, I would want this data to be used. That's the argument the other side uses. Yeah, the U.S. cut a little deal, though, with uh, U-731. I know. We, we're, uh, it's such, we have such a shady history. Like, we used Nazi scientists to get us to the moon. Well, this was particularly to keep it from falling into the wrong hands. So we thought, hey, rather than give that to the Russians, Unit 731, mm-hmm. let's cut a deal where the officers responsible for this get immunity from uh, prosecution and war crimes, and we get the data, and we'll even give you a little stipend. Yeah. On the side. We'll give you some money. Yeah, that probably way, wasn't Way reported. to come up with those biological weapons. Nicely done. Right. Um, like we said, the, the Nazi hypothermia experiments, which were pretty brutal, apparently um, the they would put you in an icy vat of water right. with a thermometer in your rectum, uh-huh. and they found that most people died went unconscious and died around when their body uh, temperature hit 77 degrees Fahrenheit, right? Yeah, it's, it's such useful information, but... No, the useful information came in they were looking for ways to revive people suffering from hypothermia because the Germans were losing so many people right. on the uh, Eastern Front in Germany uh-huh. um, that they they actually did figure out ways of quickly reviving people suffering from hypothermia. So hypoth- post-war hypothermia researchers are like, dude, these people... As ghastly as these experiments are, right. they figured out how to revive people suffering from hypothermia. We need that information. Right. So I think with with that, um, I guess that group leading the charge, Nazi data mm-hmm. has been used in a lot of ways. But then there, it should be cited. I think was the compromise that they right. came up with. Yeah, and uh, it actually worked the other way too. Um, Jewish doctors would later study um, victims of uh, starvation in the ghetto, in the Warsaw Ghetto. Right, yeah. And they use that to uh, aid in the study of um, hunger-associated disease. Right. So they found a way to, to use it at least. Right. And so we were talking also about how the U.S. has a nice long history of horrible stuff, mm-hmm. uh, like the Tuskegee experiments. You want to talk about that? Yes. A 40-year study of uh, syphilis uh, began in 1932. And they use African-Americans who sought treatment for this disease, and they basically straight up lied and deceived them, thinking they were being treated. Right. They they actually didn't use any kind of medical intervention no. because they wanted to watch the progression of syphilis. Yeah, they wanted to see it gets worse, and so they could chart everything out, and they had no idea. And then I guess finally in 1994, uh, no, 1997, the U.S. issues a uh, public apology for for this. And there's right. still some people alive who were really? experimented on. Unbelievable. Yeah. And, you know, we've, we've documented the LSD uh, experiments that unsuspecting Americans were dosed in uh, the MK Ultra uh, project. We did a whole show on that, didn't we? Yeah. That was of a good course. one. Of course. Yeah, it was like our best one. <laughs> it was one of the <laughs> Didn't ones. we? Did you forget? Well, it was a long time ago, man. So, Yeah, well, you were kind of out of it if you remember the beginning of that one. Uh, was I? Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. We did a little role-playing. So, Chuck, there was... um kind of a huge sea change in the way that human experimentation was looked at and carried out when the FDA was established in the 30s. Sure. All of a sudden there were review boards and and panels. Um, The universities kind of stepped in and said, all right, we play a big role in this. We're going to start establishing stricter oversight of human experimentation. 
And so that's kind of the course that we've followed since then, right? Yeah, they're so called drug trials. Drug trials, exactly. Mm-hmm. You know any human guinea pigs? No, I've never done it. But, um, you know, phase one uh, drug trials is usually where you, you'll get the most folks because you need healthy, uh, healthy individuals. Right. Who are and, willing to risk yeah. their health for money. And basically what they're doing in these phase one trials are, you know, when you see these commercials that rattle off a hundred side effects that are positively frightening, mm-hmm. they get these from giving these, uh, these medications to people and seeing what happens basically. Right. Yeah. Robert Lamb put it really well. He said that, uh, if your bottle of medication says that it might result in bowel, bowel control problems or suicidal thoughts, you can bet that someone received a paycheck for experiencing them at some point. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. How else would they know? Yeah. Uh, so that's phase one. Phase two deals with uh, dosing and efficiency. And phase three enlists um, actual patients who, who need this treatment. Right. Not, not healthy people. And people who volunteer for phase one clinical trials are uh, handsomely paid, depending on the risk involved. That's one of the problems. Yeah, and I mean, it's kind of like a vacation. You're, yeah. you're fed and you're put up maybe in a hotel or the sure. hospital room has um, like a video game console. You watch <laughs> movies or whatever and they just shoot you full of something and mm-hmm. then come in like every 15 minutes or hour or right. whatever and say, you know, like, have you seen that leprechaun you were talking to earlier right. again? You know, that kind of stuff. But that's one of the problems is that some of these po- folks bounce from experiment to experiment and, you know, kind of make a half-assed living off of this right i guess you can i mean especially if you're dedicated uh he talks about lamb talks about a uh an article in the new yorker that is about it's called guinea pigging i believe Uh and it's about this soap culture of clinical drug trial participants who uh, have their own like publications right that show like who's what upcoming drug trials are 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 in in the pipeline Mm -hmm. and how much they're going to pay and that kind of stuff so uh, there's a concern that like yeah, these people are kind of hooked on this lifestyle. Right. My thing is, is like, to each his own. Sure. You know? Yeah, I mean, if they're, if there are no laws being broken and they're getting paid and they're willing to do this instead of going to get a job <laughs> delivering pizzas, then, uh, you know, good on you. Frankly, if they can get my pizza to me and stay safe, sure. not harm other people, and deliver a delicious pizza still, I don't care if they're in the midst <laughs> of a drug trial right then. Here's another thing I didn't know okay. that I thought was interesting in this article is that they kind of put the uh, pedal to the metal when it comes to these trials because a U.S. drug patent only lasts for 20 years. Mm-hmm. And so if you're hung up for a decade in research and testing, which can happen, then that they don't start it over once you get it approved. You've got only 10 years left to make you know serious money. Right. So and they speed these things along. They do. Now, if you're running it through a university, they generally have – well, universities have a um, – a reputation for being total sticklers when it comes to um, institutional review boards, right? Right. Um, so as a result, I think that a lot of drug companies have found that if you run it instead through a private organization that does the clinical trials yep. for you, you then all of a sudden you can walk around a lot of these ethical guidelines sure. or you know safe conditions. And yet again, outsourcing to private contractors for money, it's, uh, just, it's the way to get around things. Exactly. <laughs> it's awful. So that's medical experimentation. There's a this is a really cool article. It's slightly outside of the How Stuff Works voice, 
Robert Lamb put his all in all into it. He put his lamb stamp on it. He did. You, at the very least, you got to read page zero, and I defy you to just read page zero. Yeah, for those of you out there, page zero is really page one. We just that's the insider lingo here. Yeah, and we still Chuck and I have worked here for uh, more than two years, and we've still never figured out why they call it page zero. I have no idea. So if you want to read page zero of how human experimentation works, you can type in human experimentation in the handy search bar at HowStuffWorks.com. And I guess you could say that that leads us to listener mail. Yes, Josh, this is about narco-states. I remember narco-states. I'm going to call it narco-state email. <laughs> okay. Uh, this is from uh, Krister, who I actually had to write Krister back and say, are you a boy or a girl? Because mm-hmm. I'd never heard that name, and Krister's a, a dude. So Krister uh, says, I currently live in Juarez, Mexico. What? Yeah, exactly, because we covered Juarez pretty thoroughly. Yeah. Uh, it is sad to stand out as a dangerous narco zone rather than being recognized for a decent achievement. Uh, but things here are indeed pretty crazy. Murders are super high and have tragically lost some friends throughout the year. As if this wasn't enough, even the government is messing with us, as I had an experience last July. My parents happened to own a clothing shop, and we were asked by some federal agents to give out a big amount of money. 250000 U.S. dollars, to be exact. Just because, of course, my family refused to do so, a week later, they came with an order to close and empty my parents' shop and locked up my dad. We gave a smaller amount just so he was released, and we thought it would just end there. But to our surprise, a month later, we were surrounded by about 20 agents holding an apprehension order to take both of my parents, charging them for supposedly commercializing pirated clothing, which was a trumped-up charge. Good Lord. I know. Uh, I was left alone with my three younger brothers for more than three months until the agent on top agreed to let them out of prison for $50,000, and the case was closed. It's a sick experience, and thank God it was finally over. Throughout those three months of grief, you guys were right there with me, and you were a nice distraction from my awful situation at a time uh, that was clearly troubling, and I want to thank you for that. It was probably uh, doesn't mean the same to you guys, but it was helpful in some way for me. I no longer want to live in this place, and I'm just looking forward to moving to the U.S. as soon as possible. I'll bet. I know. Uh, so we just wanted to share this and say Merry Christmas. So um, we had some angry people write in, by the way, about me saying we should just drop the borders and let anyone in. And I just want to say to those folks, think about people like Krister here who are just dying to get to the United States because yeah. of, of stuff like this. And the U.S. represents you know, something, something great to them, and uh, we shouldn't forget that. Yeah. So that this, I'm on my high horse, and now I'm getting off of it. Thanks, Chuck. Do we have a horse effect? No? Uh, let's see. We've got something close to it, and that would be... <laughs> Weird. If you have an email about uh, escaping certain death, being extorted by the Mexican military, or any kind of unjust um, story, right? Sure. Yeah, you can send it in an email to stuffpodcast at, wait, Happy New Year, everybody. Yeah, Happy New Year. Be safe. Krister, we're glad you're alive. Yes. Uh, we're glad everybody who made it through 2009 made it through 2009. Yes. At HowStuffWorks.com. this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more HowStuffWorks? 
Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?